invite your attention to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, as we continue in our study of this incredible prophetic Old Testament book, Daniel 5. And as you're turning there, I want you to see that we're continuing the story from last week. Now, most of us here are all too familiar with scales, but probably not this kind. Am I right? I mean, most of you don't have a set of these in your home other than maybe decoration that you actively use. You're not weighing things in the balance. Um, All around the world, however, they are still used to conduct business, to measure out agriculture. They're used for scientific experiment in laboratories, a balancing scale. Most of us are far, far more familiar with this kind. Am I right? Why well, I hear some of you like shrieking back. You kind of, you, you hate these things. You know, there's kind of a love-hate relationship that goes on. I thought it would be fun this morning since I have these up here as a sermon illustration that we would bring our whole staff up here and let them stand. Oh, see, there we go. Or maybe the deacons. I don't know. We could do, we could do that. But we all have, it seems, a love-hate relationship with a set of scales. I'm convinced of this. I'm not a conspiracy guy, but I believe that the scales at the doctor's office are six pounds heavier on purpose. That way he can tell you that you need to eat right and exercise more and do all kinds of healthy stuff. I am also, I knew I'd get an amen. I'm also convinced that the scales at the gym are six pounds lighter. And the reason why is you go to the gym and you step on those and you go, hey, I feel pretty good in this place. I like going to the gym. When in all reality, you hate going to the gym, but maybe that scale in a moment makes you feel good. Well, we're going to talk about scales today. We're going to talk about scales from a unique story. And as we look at this story, Um, the reason that we don't like scales is because scales tell us the truth. They tell us things that we don't want to hear. I would bet that almost every single person here, whether you're at home watching or you're you're here, has had some kind of a love-hate relationship with scales. We don't like them. They tell us things like this. You overdid it at Christmas time. That vacation is showing up. In this number. I mean, the scales tell us things that we necessarily don't necessarily want to hear. They tell us you ought to avoid that extra piece of pecan pie or maybe go a little lighter at that potluck. And when we're guilty of overeating and when we're guilty of eating the wrong thing, scales judge us. And maybe that's why we don't like them because scales bring judgment upon us. Well, they tell us that if we don't change our habits, then maybe sooner or later a judgment day is coming. And it might look like high blood pressure or a stroke or even a fatal heart attack. If we move to our story, though, last week we begin to see this. The wicked and blasphemous King Belshazzar found out that scales were a part of his life too. In fact, God is going to give him a message about scales, but his discovery was a little too late. God was about to judge him on the scales of his own righteousness, and the verdict would be final, and the verdict would be fatal. It often appears in life, I put this in your notes, it often appears that the righteous seem to be set aside and the unrighteous prosper. Maybe you look around you and you say, it looks like the unrighteous are powerless and the 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 excuse me the righteous are powerless and the unrighteous seem to have power they seem to be in control but appearances are not everything you need to hear this very very sternly this morning god is preparing the balance the scales either in time or in eternity but make no mistakes god will balance the scales 
All things will come to a place of God's righteous judgment. In the end, those things that you look at in this world as unjust and, and you say that is just not fair, it's just not right, they will be balanced upon God's perfect scale. And once he does that, he will issue right judgment. So I want us to think about this. Last Sunday we began in this story of King Belshazzar. It was a, a momentous occasion in the life of Babylon and in the life of this king. You'll remember if you were here with us and if you weren't we'll catch you up. We talked about the feast of Belshazzar and we talked about the finger of God. In verses 1 through 4 we looked at the fact that the king of Babylon threw a raucous party. And this party was in front of a thousand of his nobles and all of his wives and and concubines. And the wine was flowing and the women were present and this party was getting out of hand. It was absolute debauchery. And in his drunken stupor, he even remembered that his grandfather had taken all of the instruments of worship from the the temple in Jerusalem. So he took all of the chalices, all of the different implements, and he had them brought out and he poured wine into them. Perhaps one of those had been used to collect the blood of the sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. And that blood would have been sprinkled onto the very Ark of the Covenant. It was a blasphemous act as he raised a toast to a pagan god, an idol, and he drank. And as soon as he did, the Bible said in verse 5 that a finger began to write on the wall. And it wrote a message, and the message was so shocking to him. He couldn't read it, but the, the vision of what he saw, if you remember last week in great graphic detail, it said that the, literally the, the joints in his back unhinged. It said that his knees, I, I still love the King James, his knees smote one another. It says that his knees knocked. He, he literally wet himself. He was at a place where he couldn't sit down and he could not stay standing. He was staggering but not from the wine. He sobered up very quickly as he saw this divine hand writing a message on the wall for him. Now, as we look at this, he was scared out of his mind. And the Bible says that he let out a shriek. He, he screamed. And what he screamed for were all of his magicians and sorcerers. He screamed for all of his advisors. And if you've kept score, they've been striking out over and over again. And here they come to him and they bat 0 for 3. They can't help him again. They don't know what it means. They don't know what it says. They just can't uh, help him in any way. So let's go back to the story. And we're going to pick up in a moment in verse 10. But I want you to think about this. Both the queen mother and Belshazzar remember Daniel. They both mention him. In fact, in verse 14 and 16, and we'll come to these, but he says interesting things. The king says, I've heard and I've been told. You see, Daniel had made quite a mark. Daniel had been present in some of the most famous parts of history in the nation of Babylon. He was there when Nebuchadnezzar needed help interpreting a dream and Daniel rose to the occasion and his life and his integrity and his godliness left a mark on people around him. Now, the queen mother remembered Daniel. This is kind of interesting. Somewhere in an apartment in the palace, this woman emerges. She hears the noise, and she hears the clamor, and she comes out. Some would say, if it's the queen, isn't that Belshazzar's wife? No. 
Belshazzar's wife was at the party, or his wives. We've already said that. He had this party with all of his wives and all of his concubines. This, in all likelihood, is his mother. It would be Nabonidus' wife. It could have even been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. It could have been his grandmother. But uh, almost all historians point this to being his mother. So the queen mom is there in the uh, palace. And more than likely, we just get a sense that she's probably this dignified woman that comes and speaks at the right moment. And I just imagine that in his moments of dissipation and drunkenness, she probably stepped up. She was skilled in administration and probably handled some matters of business on behalf of the king. It's kind of a a sad testimony on his uh, debaucherous life. But anyway, she comes out. She hears what's going on. And it's kind of interesting to me as we look at this and think about this. She knew some things about Daniel. She remembered Daniel. So let's pick up in verse 10. And what I want to share with you is this. Daniel had, you can write it in your notes, Daniel had a living relationship with God. Daniel had a living relationship with God. That's going to be important because that testimony comes not from his own lips, but from the lips of this pagan queen. Daniel 5, beginning in verse 10. Let's look together. But when the queen mother had heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Let me stop there. If you've read the rest of the story, as we've talked about, he's going to die that night. That's just what you say, but it's very ironic. She walks in, long live the king, and God already knows that his day is coming. Don't be so pale and frightened. There's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. Listen to these descriptions. She says, he can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, as you heard me read those texts, as you think about all the things, he's a man of wisdom, of understanding, of great ability, of uh, intellect, and he has unique abilities to interpret dreams. Daniel knew very clearly where those came from. Look with me, if you will, at Daniel 1.17. I'm going to put it on the screen. You may want to scribble that down somewhere. Daniel 1.17 is vitally important to what we're seeing here in Daniel 5. Look at these words. God gave, everybody say those two words with me. God gave. Who did he give? These four men, he's talking about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God gave these four men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And say them with me. God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. You see, all of Daniel's intellect, all of his wisdom, all of his understanding came directly from a divine source. God had enabled him to do what he was able to do. And Daniel knew that. Their ability, their understanding came from God and it was not unnoticed. This queen mother comes to that place. It's fascinating to me, this is a side note, she uses the exact same phrase that Nebuchadnezzar used three different times in chapter 4. In verse 8, verse 9, and verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar said, 
in you is the spirit of the gods. He was a lost man, a pagan man. He didn't understand the Holy Spirit. He didn't have any reference for it. He didn't have any language for it. He just knew, Daniel, there's something different about you. And he understood that it was the spirit of a God. He didn't know it was the spirit of the God. But he says it three times and the queen mother comes in. It was evident. Daniel had a relationship with God that was alive and active. And it influenced his life. It guarded and guided his ways. It's important for you to see. They couldn't fully explain it. But they recognized it. So here's my question to you. Everybody lean in and look. Are you marked by a spiritual difference? Do people around you look at your life and say, that man, that woman, that college student, that high schooler, they are filled with the Spirit of God. They are led by the Spirit of God. Their life demonstrates it. Well, this woman hears the noise and she comes out. Just go there with me. Let's transport back to that scene. There's drunkenness in a party that's been sobered up very quickly. And she begins to recall the ministry of Daniel. It seems evident by her words that Daniel is no longer prominent. Daniel's off. There's a man in your kingdom. He's probably off in some lesser place. Why would you say that, Pastor? Well, we know he's not right there. He's not near the king But I just have to believe that when Belshazzar took over with his wickedness, he didn't want Daniel anywhere around him. He didn't want to have anybody that would convict him. He didn't want to come near a scale. And so Daniel left. He didn't want somebody that would tell him the truth. But she knew that he was the only hope of interpretation. Three times she points out to the king, he helped out your grandfather. He was connected to your grandfather. He interpreted dreams for your grandfather. And what he's saying basically is this. If you've got any sense in your young drunk head, you would go call Daniel because Daniel can help you out. This man can help you. Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom within whom the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he was found to have insight and understanding and wisdom. Look again at verse 12. You may want to even underline these phrases. He has exceptional ability. Filled with divine knowledge, understanding, can interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. See, over and over again. And and here's what I want to say to you. When your ministry is over, when your life is almost done, when you come to the end and people look back and they say, boy, when, when Scott Alexander was at the zenith of his game, I mean, when he was blowing and going for the Lord, Scott, what do you want them to remember you for? Wes, what do you want people to look at your ministry and remember? Sunday school teacher, what do you want them to know? Do you want them to be impressed just with your knowledge or the fact that you are filled with the Spirit of God? Oh, that we would strive after that as the legacy we would want to be leaving folks. I I love this, though. It just said he was wise and had understanding and and those abilities. I, I guess if we come to the end of our life and somebody said he had good sense, maybe that would be enough for some of us. But she recalls that he was a spiritual man. She says that the Spirit of God was in him, or the Spirit of the gods. She remembers all of this, and she pictures the scene when Daniel stepped up and stood out. When all the magicians had failed, and Daniel rose to the occasion and answered the question of the king. So let's go back there. Imagine with me, there's a, an a, thousand, a thousand drunk politicians sitting around tables. 
there are scantily clad women that are still covering up because this amazing sign has appeared. The king is reeling, and again, not from the wine, and Daniel's brought in. It's fascinating to me that Daniel is not there in this place. But it's not all that surprising because Daniel was not in some other places as we look back. He wasn't present when Nebuchadnezzar had his first dream. It says that king was alone. He wasn't present when Nebuchadnezzar had his second dream. He wasn't present when all of the magicians were brought in. He was off by himself. He wasn't near those worldly, godless counselors. He was off by himself. But Daniel was the one that they ultimately came back to again and again and again. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I want to read something to you. An old British preacher from the 1800s had a word to say about this. And I think it's particularly important to us here today. And he said ultimately this, that there's going to be a day. Well, let his words speak. He said, preachers of the word, one day you will be wanted by Belshazzar. You were not at the beginning of the feast, but you will be there before the banquet hour is closed. The king will not ask you, preacher, to drink wine with him, but he will ask you to tell him the secret of his pain and heal the malady of his heart. Just wait your time, preachers. You're a nobody now, but who cares for preachers and teachers and seers and singers and men of insights? But the preacher will have his opportunities. They will send for him when all the other friends have failed. May he then come fearlessly, independently, asking only to be a channel through which divine communication can be addressed. And then may he speak boldly to the listening trouble of the world. That's not just for the pulpit, that's for your life. Your friends may ignore you. Your friends may walk away from you. They may ridicule your faith. They may not want to hear truth. But there's going to come a time when they're down and out and at their end of their road. And they are looking for hope and looking for answers. And they're going to come to you. Can I just tell you this? I believe that as we continue to spiral downward toward a place of tribulation, there's going to come a day. And these aren't the words of a prophet. I'm not a prophet. But I will say this, I believe that Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching churches will be packed to the rafters one day because people will be hungry to hear, what does God have to say about all of this? And they won't all be Christians. There'll be lost people around us that are saying, I need hope, I need help, I need guidance, and they're going to come. Well, that's what happened here. They turned to Daniel. They brought him in. Daniel was known for having a living relationship with God. Number two, I want you to see this. He also had a lasting reputation with people. Daniel's reputation stood out. Go to verse 13 with me very quickly. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? Look at these words in verse 14. I have heard. There's the first one. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is within you, and that you're filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. And then he says in verse 15, My wise men, enchanters, have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told, there he is in verse 16, I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. 
If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. His father, Nabonidus, is still co-regent. He's still ruling with him. Nabonidus is off fighting wars. Belshazzar, the young spoiled brat that's a drunkard, is at home in the palace. And more than likely, Nabonidus' wife is the king mom that's come and said, you need Daniel. Well, he repeats those things. I have heard. I am told. I guess my question is this, church family, and each individual, how do you want to be remembered? I know that's a a morbid thought at times. You think, I don't want to think about that. How do you really want to be remembered? Do you want people to remember that you were kind and generous or hardworking? Do you want them to remember that you were good at your job? Or do you want them to remember that you were a man or a woman of God? Do you want to be remembered as one who led people to Jesus? I I pray that that would be the case, that your desire would be to make a kingdom impact. And my second question is very pointed. What will you be remembered for? Are your kids going to remember that you were digitally distracted and you were in your phone all the time or that you worked 85 hours a week and were never around? Are your grandkids going to look and say, well, my grandparents lived the life. I mean, they traveled all over the place. I, I hardly ever saw them. They were always gone. What will we be remembered for? You see, it's critical that we see every stage of our lives. If we're going to have a lasting reputation, that if we'll give it to the Lord, he'll use it. And that's what Daniel did. I'll say it this way. Character is who you really are. Reputation is really nothing more than what people say you are. And I'll add to that by saying you need to worry about your character and let God handle the reputation part. Daniel wasn't worried about appearances. He didn't try to come before the king and impress the king. He came on behalf of God to tell the truth. And when you and I decide that we're going to let one influence the other, see, when you walk with the Lord, one will influence the other. And sooner or later, your character will be revealed, good or bad. If you're worried about your reputation and you're putting up a front of something that is not real, sooner or later that will come out. Well, the the queen mother knew of Daniel. What did she remember? I mean, just walk with me for a minute. Did she remember maybe even long years ago as a, a young girl that Nebuchadnezzar, her husband's father, had lost his mind and ate grass like a wild ox, and Daniel stood tall and told him it was going to happen? I mean, she remembered him. This isn't something, oh, I think there's some guy some time ago that did something. No. She said, there's a man in your kingdom that can do this. Can you imagine what she thought? You know, the queen mother knew of Daniel. (laughs) Belshazzar knew about Daniel too. Picture this. Belshazzar has raised a toast to Bel in one of the holy vessels from the temple of God. And is drunk out of his mind. And in this lascivious party where there's all kinds of lewd things going on, he's standing there. And God shows up and writes on the wall and he trembles and spills wine all over himself. And maybe, just maybe, he was so in fear that he gripped the cup and couldn't let it go. He didn't drop it. And Daniel walks in and look at, look at what he says to him. It's kind of interesting He asked him a very simple question in verse 13. Are are you, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah? I I just believe, Dr. Kaler, he's standing there with that cup in his hand, and he goes, he's looking at Daniel, and he's looking at the cup, and he goes, 
are, are you one of the ones when we stole this? And conviction hit him again. He knew that he had defamed and blasphemed the name of God. He knew that there were powers beyond himself. And as we consider that, as he takes that chalice, I imagine he looks at Daniel with an unbelievable sense of conviction. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not Daniel the prophet being brought before the king. This is the king standing before the prophet. Whew. That ought to get our attention. He repeats the list that the queen mother has said. And he offers Daniel the only motivation the world knows. He offers him gifts, power, prestige, position, possession. I guess we could ask uh, an application question there. Are you motivated by those things? Are you living your life for position or possession? Daniel had literally the keys of the kingdom handed to him. You can be one of the most powerful men in the world, Daniel, if you'll just do what I ask you to do. And what does Daniel say to him? You keep your stuff. Give it to somebody else. He was not at all impacted by those things. It's interesting to me. Daniel says, basically, you just give those things away. And he's about to move with no sympathy. You see, Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar some mercy. Do you remember? He said, oh, king, I I wish this was not for you but for one of your enemies. He had mercy for Nebuchadnezzar, but he's not going to spare any quarter here with Belshazzar. He has no pity. You can see his heart burning with white, hot, righteous indignation. He has no love for Belshazzar because he has profaned his holy God. One commentator said it this way. Listen, church. Daniel is in full accord with the spirit that wrote the message on the wall. Daniel is resolute and resounding. He is solemn serious and strong listen to these words Daniel knows that he is about to speak the last words to that old royal sinner that he will hear in this life wow Daniel had a lasting reputation and there was a reason it shows up even here he would not compromise in his convictions over the holy things in his life number three I want you to see the failure of the king the failure of the king. We're going to look in verse 18 and follow. Daniel had answered him and said, "Keep your gifts." But Daniel refused those gifts and then Daniel reviewed the history of the king. So Daniel refused the gifts and Daniel reviews the history. Look in verse 18 with me. Your majesty, the most high God, gave Sovereignty, majesty, glory, honor to your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those that he would kill. He spared those he would spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those whom he would disgrace. But when his heart and his mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory and driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal. If you remember from chapter 4, he, his hair grew long and his nails grew long and he literally was out on the lawn of the palace and he ate grass out of the field. He lost his mind. And one day God restored it and he looked up and he gave praise and honor to God. It's fascinating to me. Look at verse 22. But you... Belshazzar, or his predecessor, or his son, have not humbled your heart, 
although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you and your lords and your wives and concubines and have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, bronze, brian, uh, silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Listen to these words. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel reviewed his history. He said, this is what happened before you and this is what you did. But now Daniel rebukes his sin. And Daniel rebukes the premeditated nature of his sin. And you need to hear this. You need to see this. This is very important for us to see. In verse 22, I want to put it up on the screen and I want you to hear it again. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this. He said, you knew it and you did it anyway. You knew what happened to your grandfather. You knew what could happen to you and you didn't care. You did it anyway. And it's amazing to me, even though this whole thing was in front of you, you were deliberate in your action. You thumbed your nose at the most high God, Belshazzar. It's like he said, my grandfather may have been taken with your God. He may be in awe of you, God, but I'm not. I'm the king. And he toasted his God. Folks, hear me. Some of you that come here week after week, you sit under the preaching of the word. You sit in Sunday school classes and you study the Bible. You heard the truth over and over again and do not live it out. That is a fearful place. You know better and you do it anyway. You're twice guilty. You're twice guilty. You say, well, sin is sin, Pastor. Well, you need to realize that the Bible is very clear. There is a very pointed nature of the judgment of God. Yes, all sin separates, but you need to hear this. Write down Hebrews 10.29. Just write it down somewhere. Hebrews 10.29. Let me read it to you. Just Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which makes us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. God will bring a stricter judgment to those that know sin is always sin, but guilt is in proportion to knowledge. Let me say that again. Sin is always sin, but guilt is in proportion to knowledge. If you knew better and did it anyway, you need to recognize that you are reckoning with a holy God. Several years ago, R.C. Sproul, who is a famed theologian who's in heaven now, was asked this question. They said, Dr. Sproul, why is it that God, who loved Adam so much and is slow to anger and patient in his love, why is it that when Adam and Eve sinned that the punishment was so severe? And his answer was very pointed. He said, what's wrong with you people? This creature from the dirt decided to defy the living God who had said from his own mouth, the day in which you eat of this fruit, you shall surely what? Did he die that day? Spiritually, yes, but he lived another day. 
And God clothed him in his nakedness with the skin of an animal. And God gave to him grace. And God gave him a promise that one would come and crush the head of the enemy. And Jesus Christ would come. And the wrath of God's sin, uh, the wrath of our sin would be placed upon his son. And you think his punishment was at all too harsh? The fact that God has offered grace to any of us ought to have every single one of us ignore some social distancing for a moment and run to the altar and praise God for his grace. I don't know about you, but I know my sinfulness. You don't have to be a king in some obnoxious way defaming God to defame God in your own life right here in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We do it all the time. We don't know who God is and who we are. We don't understand holiness or lowliness. We don't understand sinfulness or eternity. And by far and away, we don't have a concept of the goodness and the greatness and the grace of our God. We don't. Belshazzar didn't. And Daniel comes before him knowing what he had done, violating the law with Knowledge. He pointed out his premeditated sin. He pointed out the sacrilege of what he had done. You, you don't laugh at God and get away with it. You don't mock God. People want to live by their infidelity, but they don't want to die by it. People think they can mock God by living however they want and hang on to fire insurance because they walked down an aisle one time long ago and think that that's going to be satisfactory. But a holy God will not be mocked. Daniel pointed out the pagan sacrifice in verse 23. You have not honored the God who gives you breath of life. Listen to this. Write this down. Job 12.10. Write down Job 12.10. This ought to shake somebody this morning. Here are the words of Job in Job 12.10. For the life of every living thing is in his hand and the breath of every human being. Your breath is in the hand of God. That means when God decides that you're not going to breathe anymore, you're done. Have you ever thought about that? And you thumb your nose, and I thumb my nose, and I say, I'm going to treat worship as commonplace. I'm not going to give him my heart and my money. I'm not going to give him my life and my testimony. I'm not going to give him the time of day. I'll check off religious exercise and go to Sunday school or sing in the choir or be an usher or be a greeter or come to service and say, that's enough. Can I tell you, God doesn't want those sacrifices. He wants your hearts. What a foolish thing it is to profane such a God that holds our breath in his hand. How foolish for any of his creatures to mock the creator. Well, we come to the end and Daniel revealed the message. He revealed the message. In Aramaic, it says this, very simple. Meeny, meeny, tekel, eupharsin. Meeny, meeny, tekel, eupharsin. One old redneck preacher read that and he read it as this. He read, money, money tickles the parson. I promise you, that is not what this means. Meany, meany is multiplied there, doubled there for emphasis. Let me give you the words. Meany means numbered. Write it down. Tekel means weighted or weighed, either one. It's kind of a focus of weighed. And then euphorsen means divided. What is God's message here? 
God has numbered your days, Belshazzar, and your number's up. Where is the great empire of Egypt or Greece or Rome or Babylon? Where are you Tyre? Where are you Sodom and Gomorrah? They all defied God and God numbered them all and he called out to all of them and said, your number's up. And Daniel points to this king and says, your number is up. God has written and decreed, you're done. It's over. And he goes on and he says, Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Basically, God has weighed your scale in, in his scale and it's tipped out of your favor. You're not heavy enough. You don't have enough substance in your life to face the judgment of God and your time is up. You know, we think about justice this way. We think about justice as a woman with a blindfold and scales and a sword, don't we? Make no mistake that the idea is that it would be impartial. Well, God is fully knowledgeable. He's not blindfolded. He sees everything and knows everything and is still incorruptibly right. His judgment is absolutely pure and spot on. He knows all, and God weighs us in the balance. Let me give you one more verse to write down. hope I'm giving you some homework. 1 Samuel 2, 3. Talk no more so proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. You farsen, the last word. By the way, we'll kind of break it down. The you just means and. They would have put that on there. And, and the word S-I-N at the end is a way to make it plural. You, you know how to do this. We think about this. A cherub is an angel. But when you have multiples of those, we call them cherubim. So we add I am or seraphim. Well, that's all it is. The, the, the root word here, parson or farson or, or even perez, if you will, is the root word. And it simply means divided. But the idea is not just divided and given to somebody else. The Medes and the Persians would come and scoop it up. Ultimately, he's saying, you're done. Your number is up. You've been weighed and found wanting. And ultimately, you're at a place where God will divide from you your kingdom and he'll give it to somebody else. It's fascinating to me. The final thing I want you to see is the fall of Babylon, the fall of a nation. In two verses, the mightiest of all empires up till this point in two verses the fall is described look at verse 30 and 31 with me that very night Belshazzar the Babylonian king was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62 that's all that's said the city of Babylon was 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles it was a a cube city 15 miles long and wide that's just the center of this entire empire. And God, through his Holy Spirit, wastes no more ink than these two verses to say, the king died, and I put somebody else in his place. Wow. I can't quit here, but for just a moment, I need your attention. It's a matter of historical record that on October the 11th or 12th, depending on calendar dating, it was the 16th day of Tishri in 539 B.C. that Babylon joined a host of nations that tanked. Nineveh, 
the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, Spain, France, Germany, England, Austria, all have fallen from positions of power and significance. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket, and they're counted, listen to this, they are counted as small dust on the scales. They're not even weighty enough to to give measure. They're the dust that's hanging around on the scales. And folks, here's where I need you to lean in. Because we, as a nation, think we are so powerful and so mighty. But if you read your Bible like I read mine, and you read your news feed like I read mine, all of the things that were present in Babylon are present in America. And as I think about what God did there, they had pride, promiscuity, profanity, presumption. David Jeremiah talks about pleasure madness. He says we have, we've been consumed with seeking pleasure. Whether it's a restaurant or an amusement park, a sporting event or a concert, we are overcome with this hunger for more pleasure. And on the very night that they were defeated, the Medes and the Persians slipped in Babylon partied. I want to say to you today, before we leave this place, unless there is a Holy Spirit-led revival, unless there's a place of repentance among the people of God, America will go the way of Babylon. We will fall and falter just like all these other nations. God never promised us a future. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven. I will heal their land by forgiving their sin. God will write on the wall of our world. You better believe it. Maybe God's writing on the wall of your heart. And Some of you have lived in presumption. Do you realize that God gave great, great grace to Nebuchadnezzar he gave him 12 months to clean up his act and he still thumbed his nose so he let him go crazy for seven years God gave to Belshazzar a record of all of those accounts of what had happened he knew God's not given you a promise for any more time than right now and my recommendation would be this that today you would turn to the Lord in repentance. That today you would recognize his offer of grace. That today you would say, I'm not going to play with that God anymore. Not to be fearful of him. I'm not trying to scare you into a decision. I'm simply trying to show you the awesome power of this great and glorious God who holds in his hand your very breath. Who says that the most powerful nation on earth is like dust around the rim of a scale. It has no bearing on him. Two verses, he said, this one's gone and a new one's coming. Oh, that we would repent. Listen to the voice of Theodore Roosevelt from yesteryear. He said this, The things that destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, and the love of soft living and the get-rich-quick theory of self-centered life. I didn't know that we had a president that was a prophet. But his words ring true today. There are people that are living that way. And may that never be said of us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, today, 
I pray that we would heed the warning of the judgment that fell upon Belshazzar. And I pray that we would follow after the example of Daniel, that we would live lives that are spirit-filled so that we would leave a long-lasting reputation of your great name. Father, I pray today that you would move in the hearts of your people and that we corporately would repent and return to you in Jesus' name.